Why do economists care about the money parents give their children? And who do government entitled programs really benefit? From the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Thomas Day. Today we're talking with Dr. Donald Cox about intergenerational transfers. Professor Cox, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Tom. So how do you define the term intergenerational transfers and why should public policy makers care about them? So the, t- the term uh, is really uh, uh, pretty elementary. Uh, intergenerational uh, between generations uh, transfers, giving money or, or goods. So uh, um, I lose my job. My father gives me uh, $1,000 to get through the month. That's an intergenerational transfer. And why do you think public policy makers uh, should guide them one way or another? Uh, I'm not sure public policy makers should be in the business of telling my father whether or not to give me a thousand dollars but despite that I think it probably makes sense for policymakers to be aware that these things are happening and they can sometimes generate unintended consequences. So I can give you an example. Uh, When my grandmother was 92 she fell in her apartment she couldn't take care of herself anymore and uh, The next step was looking like a nursing home, uh, except that she was indigent, so she didn't have any money to to spend on a nursing home. Medicaid would pay, but the way nursing homes were allocated, where I come from in Massachusetts, at least at the time, um, was a bit quirky in that you just had to wait and see what opened up. But nursing homes in my town run the gamut from on the brink of being condemned to Versailles, so pretty big range. And my mother uh, visited some of them, and uh, she came back from one. She was really just kind of panic-stricken. Uh, what happened next was there was a frantic two weeks where my mother was trying like crazy to, to figure out uh, how she could get my grandmother into a, a decent nursing home. And she succeeded, uh, maybe a little bit of luck, um, contacting some politicians. And so Medicaid paid $5,000 a month for my grandmother to live in a really nice place. But when you think about it, she really wasn't the beneficiary of that policy. It was my mother, because my mother was off the hook she would have otherwise had to care for my grandmother. So private transfers, even if they don't happen, they didn't happen in this case, they still make you look at public transfers in a completely different way. So how much activity, economic activity, do you uh, think economic transfers represent? And, And what are the implications for taxation and redistribution? So that's a really good question. The, uh, in fact, that was uh, when people started researching that in the early 80s, uh, that really helped uh, 
get the whole enterprise off the ground. And uh, one thing that, that uh, a couple of economists, uh, uh, Larry Summers and uh, uh, Larry Kotlikoff did, was they wanted to ask the question, where does wealth come from? And the standard answer at the time was that I save for my retirement. So I put a dollar in a fund, and that dollar really has my name on it because 30 years later, I'm going to take it and spend it. And meanwhile, it's there to finance capital investment. But what if that dollar had my daughter's name on it in the form of a bequest? So what Summers and Kotlikoff set out to do was to try to figure out what those proportions were. And the answer they came up with was controversial and wrong, but wrong in a good way. They said only 20% of the dollars were picked up by retirees. The rest went to bequests. It's a big controversy. Others argued the proportions were exactly the opposite. Somehow they wound up meeting in the middle. It's about 50-50. And so uh, if you think about where wealth comes from, um, it appears that it's about half bequests and about half retirement savings. I mean, here's another way to think about the importance of inheritances, the importance of intergenerational transfers. Before the Industrial Revolution, you had the family farm. That was it. That was your wealth. And then when you died, you passed that family farm along to your heirs. The wealth stayed constant, and it was all inheritance. Later, when income started growing, if you think about the arithmetic of that, you know, if my income is three times what my father's lifetime income was, he gives me a bequest, chances are it's going to be small potatoes compared to the money that I'm making and saving. So when incomes grow quickly, the importance of bequests recede. And it gets mirrored in uh, social life. So that, uh, you know, early literature, um, maybe pre-Industrial Revolution, think, well, it's not, what does he do for a living? What does she do for a living? It's, uh, what family are they from? Are there gender considerations here uh, when looking at intergenerational transfers? And uh, have you encountered any surprising results uh, when looking at this? Yeah, as far as gender differences go, it seems that uh, it seems that no matter what country you look at, that uh, all else equal, women are more likely to uh, receive financial transfers compared to men, um, and it's not crystal clear why that is occurring. One possibility is that uh, part of the motivation for private transfers might be not just altruism, although that's probably the first thing people think of, but maybe a quid pro quo so that uh, um, you're paying someone to help you in some way. Uh, if that's the case, if, if you look at uh, um, if you look at care that, that adult children provide to their 
elderly parents, frail, uh, not very healthy. Uh, That's dominated by daughters rather than sons. Uh, So it may be that that part of the gender differential is really a payment, because women are more involved in that, um, those kind of services. How do you see this subject evolving in the future generations? The whole subject of intergenerational transfers? Yes, oh, wow. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of different ways to tackle that. One would be to, I mean, the lifeblood of, of, of knowing what's going on comes from um, research data. And uh, the data sets are improving all the time. Um, this afternoon I was talking about a data set called the American Life Panel, so it's internet driven. At the, um, they have a stable of about 2,500 respondents. Uh, they interview them once or twice a month. Um, and uh, the turnaround is really rapid. You can, you can go from being in the field to uh, being in the hands of researchers. Uh, really fast compared to the, the face-to-face interviews where it might take up to two years. But you also build up a library of questions and since they're the same people you can just link everything up and you start knowing more and more about these people. And uh, so I think it's innovations like those that is, are going to help tell us new things about intergenerational transfer behavior. Um, and they're kind of serendipitous. You just never know where the next, you know, new data set or new idea that's going to be really useful comes from. Um, Donald Cox, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by Claire O'Hanlon and David Levine. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks this week to Ashley Gabrish. You can find us at www chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org Thanks for listening and join us next time.